Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. My name is Anne Wennerstrand, your host for today's show. And you'll notice I am indeed not your intrepid host, Tracy Morgan, but I am one of eight new hosts joining the podcast. Our aim is to do as many interviews with psychoanalytic writers and bring them to you as is humanly possible. So I'd like to thank Tracy and, of course, thank the New Books Network for this wonderful opportunity. So today, I'm very pleased that we'll be speaking with Dr. Claudia Louise, who has written and published a really wonderful book entitled, Where's My Sanity? Stories That Help. A little bit of background on Claudia. Dr. Claudia Louise has been credited with, quote, clearing up the misconceptions behind the common cliches of psychotherapy by Peter Kramer, the author of Listening to Prozac. And she is being called a new voice in America for how change really happens. She's been getting a lot of attention for this book, both within and outside of traditional psychoanalytic circles. Claudia is a modern psychoanalyst with more than 25 years of experience treating individuals, couples, and families. She describes herself as on a mission to help people understand how emotional experiences really create change. And, um, through reading her book, I kind of think of her as an ambassador of psychoanalysis at this point. The book does offer compelling case studies based on her years of treating hundreds of patients. The book has clearly touched a nerve with both practitioners and the general public. Psychoanalysts are ranking this book with the seminal work, Love's Executioner by Irving Yalom, and she's garnered positive reviews from the general public as well. Claudia holds a Saya D. Uh, an MA and a certificate from Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis in Brookline, Mass. And she also has her EDM from Harvard University. She did her training at um, the Boston uh, School of Psychoanalysis, trained and then worked in the wards of Metropolitan State Hospital, Children's Hospital, and dozens of other nonprofit agencies in greater Boston. Claudia Louise is the winner of the 2008 Writer's Digest Award for Best Writer's Website and the 2006 winner of the Phyllis W. Meadow Award for Excellence in Psychoanalytic Writing. Um, totally an underachiever, I must say. <laughs> and so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Claudia Louise to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Hello, Claudia. Hello, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, Very thank happy to be with you. Thank you. It's really, really good to have you here. And I really, really loved this book. Um, I, I did read it twice, I have to say. Um, I think that I uh, encountered it first in a psychoanalytic uh, reading group that I'm in New York City with a bunch of colleagues who are all mostly modern psychoanalysts. So it was very wonderful to, for me to read your book and then to have the opportunity to interview you about it. Um, so to just say to the listeners a little bit about the book, um, to give them an introduction, because this is really a very different kind of psychoanalytic writing. Um, it's, it's in the first person voice. Um, it's, it's a really direct, there's sort of direct instruction to the reader as to how to enter into the experience of reading the book. Um, there are composite cases written in narrative form 
uh, in a very sort of readable form. Um, I found it actually quite hilarious at times, Claudia, and, and funny. Good. It's um, very self-revealing of the analyst. And uh, you speak very plainly of your experiences with patients um, talking about your own and yourself, talking about your own treatment, your supervision. Um, and it's done in this really warm and accessible way. And I would say it's a bit seductive. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad you agree. <laughs> I, I was actually going to say seductive. That's the kind of transference I always enjoy the most. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say seductive in a good way, but then I thought, it's always good to have a seduction <laughs> going on, right? Good and dangerous. Good and dangerous, right. So um, I guess my question to you um, is, who or what kind of person did you have in mind as your audience for this book? Because this is not really the typical book that... Um, uh, you know, it, it's not a, it's not like this uber clinical heady book on the surface, but it really um, describes really the technique of the modern analyst, but in a way, again, yeah. that's so warm and so accessible, and it's really about therapeutic action. So, right. Um, what audience did you have in mind? The the what changed the book from a, a didactic book about modern psychoanalysis into a set of stories was uh, discovering who my audience was. So you've, you've hit the nail with the head mm. on the head with uh, that question about an audience. What happened to me is I had written a book about how modern psychoanalysis works, and I really wanted to write it for the lay public, but I wrote it as a didactic book, which was really the skeleton Mm -hmm. uh, I had all of the theoretical foundation in there and the clinical meta theory. And then I had the very, very good fortune of being put in contact with a television and radio, radio producer whose name was Keith Talbot. Mm -hmm. And uh, Keith had won Peabody Awards, seven or eight different awards for his work producing public radio, and he worked at Disney. So he really knew audiences. Hmm. And uh, he started to help me on the book. We became immediate uh, friends because uh, he was fascinated by psychoanalysis. And uh, he's a person who loves to learn. So to make a long story short, he read some of my writing. And what he really connected to was a tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of writing I had done where I had put myself in it. And he said, you, this is what you have to do. And I said, absolutely not. Mm. It's like, oh, analysts, this is not what, what analysts do. And through uh, a little bit more writing, he said, it's, it's not about you. It's about the audience. Mm. And then he started having me read all kinds of books from, from all different ilks about habits and about a dopamine in the brain. Mm. And I started to learn about how people perceive and uh, experience media. Oh, that's and, so interesting. Uh, and that's how the Book of Stories was born, and he actually sculpted every single story so that it would ha hit on the notes that would create enough dopamine mm. to keep the reader fascinated. So together we created 
from the skeleton of the proper meta theory and, and clinical theory, uh, with that as the, the foundation so that the characters could be true and that I could be true as a character, we created what ultimately ended up being a work of art. And uh, I asked Keith once if he thought of himself as an artist, and mm. he said, yes, he did. So that was the, the joy and the beauty of writing the book. And it, it's not unlike, you know, when you hit these notes, when you're with a patient in the room, mm. and suddenly you, you open up to what that patient is about and what they need from you emotionally, how to join that patient in their universe. Mm. And it can it, the more skewed the universe, the more fascinating it comes to join the patient in that universe and follow them in there so that they finally have somebody in that world with them. Well, the process of writing the book with Keith was exactly like that. that wow. When I felt that I had it uh, with the audience uh, in that way, I experienced a similar excitement and, and feeling that everything is right in the world. It's where it should be. It's going to be growth. And uh, that's how the book was, was born and how the uh, audience shaped uh, how the stories could uh, help people understand that we're not we're not in this uh, to learn more solutions exactly and not not learning how to take the steps to change um, in a way the 12 steps right or the 10 steps right or the steps that people would normally sort of you know, look for in a book like this. And I think that's what's so special about it. And it's really interesting to hear about how your process evolved. Um, I think um, I, I read this thinking about, you know, there are certain patients that we encounter um, that come into treatment, not really knowing, um, well, not knowing what to expect, of course, no one knows what to expect, but not really even knowing what therapy or analysis is about. Um, And you really captured the essence of that kind of patient through some of your descriptions. And I actually, I, I had the opportunity to hear you speak um, in New York a couple of months ago at the center for, uh, for modern psychoanalytic, CMPS, I always forget it was Center yeah. for Modern Psychoanalytic, Psychoanalytic Studies. Studies. Mm-hmm. And you you talked about the pre-analytic patient. And I thought that was such an interesting, you know, I hadn't really heard that term before. Um, and one of the things you said was when a patient comes into treatment and they're pre-analytic, they have a problem they want to solve. When they're an analytic patient, they have a question about themselves. Right. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, talk about your thinking, um, and if this book is really in a way kind of to engage the pre-psycho, you know, the pre-analytic patient? Absolutely. And, and this is the most important thing that we as analysts have to do now is to walk the tightrope of the dialectic between the conscious and the unconscious, between the cognitive and the analytic. Mm. The way that that works in 
my mind is that people who don't know about psychoanalysis, all they have to work with is their mind. Mm-hmm. In fact, even as analytic patients, we still have a mind. Sometimes we forget that we have a mind because we get mm. more interested in regression and emotional communication. Mm. But the pre-analytic is, comes into treatment prepared to do some work. Mm-hmm. They want to think about things. They want to be introduced to new ideas. They want to try different behaviors. They want to fix the problem. Right. They want ideas for how to approach it and do things differently. So I've trained a lot of people in therapy on how to become modern analysts with their children or with their spouses mm. or the people they're working with and kind of uh, staying away from the uh, ego and doing a lot of joining that way. Eventually, what happens to a person who becomes interested in how an analyst thinks cognitively is that hopefully they develop a question, at which point you can invite them to explore it by lying down on the couch and and free associating. The book, similarly, is helping people to think cognitively about uh, how to consider entering into an analysis Mm -hmm. and developing a question. For themselves and, and thinking in a new, perhaps for them, unresearched way about how change really happens. Right, right. So it, it helped me a lot to understand how to write this book from having worked with so many pre-analytic patients in the suburban town that I moved to. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I have a similar practice, actually, outside of New York City. Um, when did you start to kind of conceptualize that um, pre-analytic, the idea of the pre-analytic patient, or is that something in the literature, or? That was something my mother asked me to talk about when I went to CMPA. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that was her formulation that it's something that I'm able to do well, uh-huh. and that's something that she thought that her students would enjoy learning something about. So I wrote that talk um, at her at her request, and it was a little bit of synergy between us, but there's no question in my mind that there's a big, big difference between uh, working with somebody who's ready for analysis working versus working with someone who doesn't know what it is. Right, right. And it was interesting in the book and also in your talk, you talked about um, pre-analytic patients often leave treatment abruptly and they also right. abruptly return. I mean, and that has been my experience as a clinician. Um, you know, they're oftentimes, and it's been sort of comforting and it's helped me deal with, you know, the kind of loss and sometimes the shame that one feels um, as an analyst to losing patients and not really understanding what might be going on. Of course, there are a lot of layers to that. Um, Well, analysts lose patients uh, when the patients aren't ready for analysis. Right. Analysts are good at keeping analytic patients. But um, I, you know, it's it's interesting that my mother came up so early in the interview, (laughs) my mother being faculty at CMPS and me being a second-generation analyst, because I had someone when I went into analysis, meaning my mother, Mm. who could teach me how it's done. Right. So I uh, developed a negative feeling towards my analyst, and I was perfectly ready and prepared to leave. I said, this therapist is ridiculous. Mm. And it was my mother who said, oh, that's wonderful that you have that feeling. That's exactly what you um, go and talk about. And uh, 
that'll be what really gets you places. So mm. in some ways, I had the benefit of having a teacher uh, to guide me through the process of analysis so that I could stick with it and explore my own. Career. Right, right. And now we have your book to help, yeah. to help other and, people. Uh, analysis, sometimes I think of it as an underground movement with mm. its own set of, we forget sometimes how much we know and how right. much the general public doesn't know about the rules of analysis, like that negativity is good. Well, this is a concept that's absolutely, completely foreign right. in the real world. Well, and in the world we live in, especially, um, you know, we live in a world where the edict, edict is to sort of remain positive no matter what's going on, um, you know, or to to just kind of push away bad feelings or to see bad feelings or negative feelings as a sign that something's wrong. That That's absolutely right. And that's what everybody feels better when they work on that. Right. It's what, uh, it's what uh, patients who've had 15 or 20 years of analysis work on. Right. Right. So it's, it's, it's very, very tricky being in the, the, the world of the cognitive and the conscious, which strives for positivity and constructiveness. Right. It is. And it's, it's limiting. Yes. So um, getting back a little bit to your revelations about yourself as an analyst and understanding that was also a process that you had to come to as a writer. Um, it's interesting. I think about um, the sort of digital world that we live in now, um, which has really only been around for the last 10, 15 years, right? right? Where everybody has a Facebook page and Twitter feed and a website Um and I notice in the book that at the end of every chapter, you actually give your email address to the reader, which I thought was, you know, kind of interesting and kind of radical. And I wanted to hear more about your engagement with the reader that way. But right. I also had the thought that in there being so many ways that the patient could encounter the analyst, whether it's by accident or they're searching for you on Google or um, or they're looking at your website to decide whether you're the shrink for them. Um, there are just so many more ways now to invoke transference and to work with it. Right. And I was wondering what your, you know, what your thoughts are about that, what your experiences of well, that. I, I, my view about being visible as a real person is that there's no such thing as being invisible. Mm -hmm. A person who doesn't present anything about themselves and is very, very neutral is going to evoke as much transference as somebody who is a, a real flagrant personality. Mm -hmm. In fact, I might venture to say that the neutral person may even uh, invoke more transference because you have to be somebody mm. so you you brand yourself either way now psychoanalysis used to be uh, something that only the conoscenti would go into right Freud didn't feel you could treat narcissism and similarly analysts were all of a similar ilk mm. now it's completely different 
analysts are from all walks of life. They're from all economic backgrounds. Some right. are very uh, introverted. Some are very extroverted. So at a at a certain point, but you can't fool anybody into thinking that you're just a neutral person. Right. If you are comfortable with yourself, that's when you become transparent to the patient. Mm. Mm-hmm. Whoever you are, the patient doesn't care that you uh, had trauma, that you didn't, that you have curly hair, that you're rich, that you're poor. The, the patient only cares that you have enough presence with emotions and with yourself that you will be available to him. Right, right. It's all that matters. You can uh, do whatever you, you want beyond. But this morning, I was sitting at my computer at 7.30 in the morning in my pajamas. And uh, lo and behold, there's a knock on my door. My 7.30 patient had scheduled an exit <laughs> session, and I had forgotten. She'd never seen me in my pajamas before. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had been mortified by this, it would have become a mortifying event. Right. As it was, I opened the door as if nothing had happened, <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm... Uh, I'll be right down. I just have to throw a little dress on. Mm-hmm. I went upstairs. I came down, and I don't know if it'll be processed with <laughs> anything else. But there's a there's a, a something that happens in the inductions uh, that I have had a lot of patients who I apparently keep popping up on their LinkedIn page, and I keep popping up on their Facebook. Mm-hmm. I ignore it. I don't want to know about you. right. So there's kind of like... The analytic patients are not prepared for that. Right. Right. The pre-analytic patients need to have something to know about you. They need that because they need to relate to you as a human being. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way you can be transparent. No pre-analytic patient can come in the room with someone who doesn't say very much, who's neutral, who they know nothing about. Right. Too uncomfortable. It's too uncomfortable and it's too much anxiety. You know, I, I think you had said um, in your talk that frustration, gratification leads to talking. And that that's really true. You know, that there, there can't be too much discomfort. There can't be too much anxiety where the person... It's, it's, it's like making a, a work of art. It, it really is finding that sweet spot, mm-hmm. that beautiful, beautiful sweet spot where the person just keeps opening up to you. Right. Mm-hmm. And where the person wants to keep reading you, where you know that you don't want to get heavy and pedantic. But, you know, look, you got to uh, look in yourself, look into your unconscious. You know, how much longer are you going to read self-help? Come on, lie down on the couch. This is the way it's right. going, you know. We are so frustrated right. as analysts with the 10 steps, the 4 steps. Right. And it's so hard to reel back from that and well, be with the pre-analytic patient. Right. It is. And I think that there, you know, I know that a lot of us in New York are thinking about this as well, that there's kind of a PR problem that psychoanalysis can encounter, um, which makes it difficult for patients to come to us. It makes, you know, it makes us difficult to feel really good about ourselves. Um, and I just wonder, 
if you think about that, I mean, we had... I think about that every minute of every day. Every day, yeah. Yes, as you said, I want to be the ambassador right. for psychoanalysis. Um, I think that what we have to do as analysts is to sell psychoanalysis in a way that is super, super sexy and exciting. Mm. We've always sold it for what it is, which is a place where you come to get uh, regressed, enraged. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, uh, you have to be frustrated. You have to follow the rules so we can study the resistance. Right. And uh, what we have to do is not sell the process, but we have to sell the meta theory. Right. Right. We have to sell how drive theory really works. We have to sell how uh, that we have an unconscious. Right. And we have to sell that emotional experiences. If you're a modern analyst, you would sell this. And right. I'm a modern. You would sell that emotional experiences are what take you places. Right. Those those three things are what, and we have to create a seismic shift in consciousness. Yes. In the American public, and we have to sell it that way. Everybody knows what it's like to lie down on the couch, but they don't realize how uh, much we've advanced in how we do now. Right. People still think that they're going to get insights and interpretation. Exactly. They don't realize it's a soul soul to soul connection. Right. It's a soulmate connection, as you say in your book. And I think you also um, do a really wonderful job in the book of articulating. Um, concepts such as drive theory and the aggressive drives and libidinal, you know, you, you sort of create a whole nother language. I, I'm assuming that's intentional, but you do create a whole language around that. That's really something, um, that I think the average person can understand. That's what we, that's what we need to, uh, sell psychoanalysis. Right. Right. There's actually, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a a practitioner in California who has a website called Psychoanalysis is Sexy. Um, (laughs) Her first name is Tiffany. I'm forgetting her last name, but she's on one of the listservs that I, um, and she's really amazing in her um, promotion of psychoanalysis. Tiffany, if you're listening, big props. Um, But it's www.psychoanalysisissexy.com. And so so I think there's something happening on the West Coast that's, you know, relatable to to, um, your ideas, right? Because if it's not pleasurable and a person doesn't experience something is potentially giving them pleasure, why should they come? It has to be uh, pleasurable. They have to know how deeply, deeply satisfying it is to be heard. Mm. To have somebody who isn't going to respond to your mishigas the way the rest of the world responds. Right. And who's going to stay with you and keep wanting to get to know you. uh, It's very sexy. It is very sexy. And we don't get it very in very many other places. No, you don't get that kind of uh, devotion in in other places. That kind of uh, uh, to find a person who's willing to to be in a relationship with you, no no matter what, and who in fact is interested in getting to know you more as you slowly reveal uh, all the worst parts of yourself. Yes, 
pretty exciting. It is, it is pretty exciting stuff. Um, there were two quotes that I um, thought would be wonderful on a psychoanalytic T-shirt. <laughs> I think you have a lot of truisms in this book. And um, one of the, the quotes that I would put on my psychoanalytic T-shirt would be, change doesn't only happen when you want it to. Right. I love that. And then the other one is, you can't order your drives around and tell them how to be. Right. So could you say more about that, particularly the second one? You just found the two quotes in the whole book that are the ideas that we have to sell to create this seismic shift in consciousness. Maybe that's why I want to start a T-shirt company. <laughs> I, I will one. buy that T-shirt and sell it it's know, actually, on website. It's actually something Tracy Morgan and I talked about so many years ago, we used to joke about that, that we were, you know, join at that point, we were talking about join the resistance and things like that. And we thought, we have these yeah. great slogans, let's put them on t shirts. But I had forgotten all you know, about I that. Think, I think that with the a woman in California, psychoanalysis is sexy, we should just all go into business. I think so. <laughs> with that, because that's what we need as psychoanalysts. This is the kind of dopamine and, and fun kind of PR that what we're trying to do in talking about drive theory, you know, it would be so great if we could just change our drive right. and not have our libidinal drive all tied up holding our uh, aggression in and, right. and be able to be free creatively and sexually, why not? Right. Intellectually in, in every way to be ourselves and to enjoy life and be productive. Right. So that, that quote would be a good quote to explain to people why they... I think, personally, that Americans are so ready for something different. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think this is one of the reasons why there's so much anxiety and depression in the, in the country is because mm. people are realizing that the same old, same old just doesn't work. It's not working, yeah. And there's so much, um, you know... I don't know if it's hostility per se, but there's so much um, working against the kind of, I'm now just talking on a market, you know, the market side, working against people being able to participate in longer term therapies or process oriented, depth oriented psychoanalysis. Um, you know, I think insurance companies are looking for any way they can to reduce um paying for people's mental health care. Yeah, it has to be something that people buy into the way they would uh, an education. Right, that they don't think twice about paying for. Right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And I think that the American public does see therapy as an attitude adjustment mm. kind hmm. of uh, experience where they will be corrected, set straight, yeah. meet the standards of normalcy. And right. This is one of the reasons why people are so disillusioned. With right. And that's really a structural problem because I think that's, you see that in the criminal justice system. I mean, where, you know, a person who is, you know, a sex offender or something, let's say, the kind of therapy that they're mandated to do has nothing to do with helping them with 
their issue. You know, it's very punitive. Um, that's just what comes it to my mind. It reminds me of a, of, a, of a modern analyst who was going into a prison system and started work with a woman who was an artist, arsonist. Mm. And, and she, there were some therapists lined up to work with her, and he said to her, you should have been a fireman. And she laughed because he got it. He yeah. got it. Exactly. That was a relationship right there. Exactly. Um, so I think that I want to maybe segue as I'm watching the clock on our 50-minute hour. We have a little bit of time. And I really wanted to... Um, hear you say more about um, family life, if you will, because there's so much in your book, um, the vignettes or the composite cases. Um, you know, there's a really vivid marital problem <laughs> that you describe um, that you really help a couple uh, learn how to have their negative feelings towards one another, which is really powerful. Um and you have at least two examples of working with um, one is an adolescent and one is a child and working with the parent whose child is in treatment. And I think this is I maybe personally I'm interested in this because this is a lot of my practice and um, it's a very delicate, you know, uh, a delicate relationship that the analyst forms with the parents of the patient. Um and it seemed to me that you you had a lot to say in the book about parenting in general and um, some of the problems that parents are having and some of the criticisms that are leveled towards parents. And would you just share your thoughts about that? Well, the, the um, most difficult person to understand is your own child. Mm. Somehow, uh, children and parents, there's such a symbiosis there. And I have found that uh, a parent doesn't mind being depressed or anxious, but if the child gets depressed or anxious, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. Right. They cannot get on top of that feeling, and they really need the child to give them good feelings. I think a lot of what's happening in a kind of sandwich generation is that I see a lot of people in treatment whose parents didn't understand them and mm -hmm. were unable to give them uh, feelings that they needed. Mm -hmm. And this happens in families all the time. You know, you have a child and sometimes you're compatible with that child and you get along and other times the child is your polar opposite right. on your nerve. right. And for a lot of people in treatment that had parents that they were just not on the same wavelength, right? these people then go on to have children, and they want the children to give them good feelings, mm -hmm. and the children aren't giving them good feelings. They're not successful, or they're struggling with their own emotions, and it's just too much. Yeah. But um, I used to, when I started working with parents, tell parents it's okay to have your negative feelings. Mm -hmm. And um, I realized uh, 
when that wasn't working, and I think that it made patients want to leave me mm. because it made them feel that I wasn't going to help them to have better feelings about themselves. Right, right. And so... To have thought, better feelings about themselves as a parent. When you have right. bad feelings about your child, you're having... It's all mixed in yeah. feelings about yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you tell a parent who isn't sophisticated enough with emotions to, to really believe that it's okay to want to throw your kid out the window. Right. And you tell that parent, you know that's okay to want to throw your kid out the window, that parent is going to get very depressed. Right. So what you have to do when parents are too flooded with negativity, you don't want to give them the hopeless message, oh, it's okay to be filled with negativity. Mm-hmm. You want to remind them that uh, they have a lot of positive feelings. Right. That uh, other parents with this miserable, miserable, horrible child would have been much more destructive with that child. Right. And, uh, and then you want to help the parent to recognize something positive in the child. And this works with spouses, too. Sometimes people need help because the negative feelings towards the spouse or the child is a projection. Mm-hmm. You need to help them see the child or the parent in a, in a more positive light. And that's the emotional communication that will keep the person coming and talking. Right. Uh, until they're strong enough and have enough self-confidence, enough self-esteem and enough ego strength uh, to manage all of the negative feelings that they're having. Right. Right. So you kind of do a mixture of any parent would have this feeling to, about this horrible child. You, you start there. That is the right feeling to have. And mm-hmm. you're doing a very good job of managing it. Right. It's it's uh, it's so hard to feel like a bad parent. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's such a it's an easy feeling to have, <laughs> you know. And there seems to be a lot of cultural reinforcement about, um, you know, if if you're having a hard time as a parent, there's sort of a way that one's made to feel there's something really wrong with you because it's supposed to be this blissful, you know, I'm thinking about sort of like idealization of motherhood. Um, you know, that, that once you have that baby, it's, it's bliss. Well, it is, it is for some people when they have that wonderful match, when they have a baby whose temperament is suitable to their temperament, but it's so much more common to have a child who you don't understand and who grates on your nerves mm-hmm. and your patience and everything else. But what helps parents a lot is to um, is to know that children need very different things. So when I correct a parent's uh, treatment of the child, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, you have a very fragile child and a very tough parent. Other right. times you need a child, you have a child that needs a tough parent that needs boundaries, and you have a, a fragile parent who's unable to set boundaries. I mean, you see the the incompatibilities all the time right. where the child needs it. And at that point, I think you do have to correct the parent's perception that the child is like them, and you mm-hmm. have to help the parent see the child either, either as being in need of some tough love or is in being in need of uh, more understanding right. depending on the child. And 
in the process of teaching people how to follow the contact, teaching parents mm-hmm. how to understand their child, it takes the onus off the parent's ego. Right. You're saying, look, you didn't have to have this a child. If you had another child, the way you're parenting would be wonderful. Right. And when you explain it uh, to them that way, they can have more success parenting the child, and from that success, they feel better about themselves and about the child. And, right. You know, this is all pre-analytic. Right, exactly. There's a quote that you, um, in the context of this part of the book of working with a parent that I, that really struck me, um, you write, it's always interesting for me to hear when parents are able to back down from power struggles that they feel guilty. Why would they feel guilty if they feel better towards the child, especially when we know how much better children tend to be when the parent is relaxed? Something about, um, you know, because often the instruction to parents, if it's appropriate, is to kind of back off and... Um, try to observe your child, study your child. The, the, the problem um, with, um, the, I think what I was trying to say, was parents feel guilty when they back down. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were neglected. Right. And the parents didn't intervene or they, they didn't care. They feel they have to stay engaged and stay involved mm-hmm. with the child, but it's all negative. Right. It's so a when negative they involvement. back away from that power struggle, from that negative involvement, they feel kind of guilty because they're they're now acting on their unconscious desire to 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 get rid of the, child, rid of the child, right? And, and neglect it's, the child. It's too so much they, guilt. They would rather stay in the connected negative union, and this is true of marriage too, right? Than to go into a place of indifference and get in touch with the fact that you really hate this child, right? Much easier to have all this of anger and frustration and to back away from that uh, and back so it's, it's a lot of times it's uh, parents resist studying their their child to really get to know their child and they have to be helped to know that that's not neglect right they're not going to lose the connection they're going to find a better one right yeah that makes so much sense Definitely. And it helps to understand some of the unconscious dynamics because then you can intervene in a way that addresses what people can't always say. Right. And sometimes if, as modern analysts, it's, uh, you can uh, address unconscious dynamics without even interpreting them or even bringing them to the fore. If you know that a mother unconsciously wants to kill her child, you can say, uh, you won't kill your child mm-hmm. if you back down. You can reassure them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the same, so you, it sounded like you were making a lot of the same connections about working with a couple as you would, well, they're all couples, right? Um, but the couple in the book, could you say a little bit to our listeners about that, um, the scenario that you helped them with that was very interesting well, you know nowhere other than in marriage is projection <laughs> so rampant so rampant I mean, there's more projection in marriage than there is in analysis 
because you're with this person all the time. You're right. with this person. So the distortion, how people experience the other person, the mental distortion, when you come up against all your, the, the, the worst part of yourself, the mm. most difficult part, the most unresolved part of yourself, all that is going to show up in the marriage. Right. So I love working with couples because I get to learn what the stories are. Right. It's fascinating, endlessly fascinating once you understand what each individual's stories are, how they get projected, and how the couple then uh, works together. <laughs> right. Frustrated. And a lot of times people do divorce and they marry someone who doesn't arouse those projections and they can leave that part of their psyche alone. Right. Yeah. I get a lot of couples who don't seem to want to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't tell people you're projecting. Mm-hmm. You can't tell people that you, the way you're experiencing your spouse is because you uh, uh, distort reality because you haven't resolved feeling unloved or disappointed or enraged or whatever right. the, the feeling, the default feeling is. Right. So it's a very, very rich and fertile ground, but... What you can do when each person in the couplehood can can have somebody who understands their perception of it. Right. It's, it's so much easier to stay in the marriage until you get cured. Right, until you get cured. And um, focusing so much on the, you know, the horribleness in the other, right? Giving us the hope that we can change what's wrong and it's all outside of ourselves. Um, yeah. This person embodies everything that's wrong with the world. Right, right. And, you know, when a couple can can start to heal each other, it's uh, fantastic. Mm. You know, uh, I have a, a, a man in treatment, for example. He was severely molested, uh, raped by a brother for years. Mm. He'd never worked through any of that. He's feeling raped now and neglected by the wife. And she's able to understand how he's interpreting what she's doing and hear it. Yeah. And, and not have to defend against it. She's had a, a bit of analysis. And she, more than me, is going to cure him. Wow. Yeah. Make it possible for him to stay in the relationship and see things another way, possibly. Yeah. I think you say in the book that... Um why do we get married so that we can hate someone other than ourselves? <laughs> okay. Or to have someone besides ourselves to be, to be edgy with, you know, because right. it's so curative. Um, so we are actually kind of winding down our 50 minute hour here. Um, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, so that is, that is the style of it's new so books and psychoanalysis. To talk about my book this way, because I've been talking to all commercial radio. Well, I was wondering about that. And I was thinking about that when I, um, you know, when I planned on talking to you that I really wanted to make this more of a, an opportunity to talk about, um, psychoanalysis because I, I just wonder how oh, it must be so for you great. to talk to other audiences well, let's see. I've had four-minute segments. Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> but no Oprah yet? Are you? Is that a rumor? Uh, they're, they're, they, I guess my book is in line. The Super Soul Sunday people are looking at the book. Oh, wow. Would that be great? That, that would, would be, be great. So we'll definitely great. make T-shirts for that one. <laughs> well, she loves seismic shifts in consciousness. Yes. Because she likes to think big. 
Yes. And her big guru, who is um, Eckhart Tolle, oh, right. the power of now, is all about uh, recognizing that the world that you create is really projections. He's got different language for it. Yes. Languages that we live in a pain body. Right. And you have to achieve presence with the pain body. Right. So he a- really sees it, sees uh, our suffering the same way a modern analyst would as a body of projection. He's got a different method for how to work with it. But I suspect that a lot of people who are trying to achieve presence with their pain body are not able to do it. Right. Well, I might be biased, but I think that would be a seismic evolution for Oprah. And uh, this may be just what psychoanalysis needs. Right. <laughs> that great. Yeah. Well, we, we have to sell the meta theory. Yes. Yes, we do. Um, I'm just going to say a few words before we actually say goodbye to you, Claudia, because I, again, I do see that the 50 minute hour is coming to an end. Um, before we say goodbye, I wanted to let the listeners know that there are really going to be another crop of interviews coming up. Um, so subscribe on iTunes, subscribe your mother to new books in psychoanalysis, subscribe your husband, your boyfriend, your kids, and anyone else you know. Uh, my next interview will be with Dr. Mark Epstein on his book, The Trauma of Everyday Life. I'm really looking forward to that interview. So stay tuned for that, uh, probably in early September. And to Dr. Claudia Louise, I want to Thank you so much for being here on New Books and Psychoanalysis. It was really, really wonderful to talk to you. Thanks so much. I loved every minute of it. Okay, thanks. Thanks.